your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope. Brought to you by the Sensory Learning Center with host and mother of a recovering child with autism, Betsy Hicks. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Betsy and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Betsy Hicks. Hello and welcome to our show. This is Autism One, a conversation of hope, and we are very excited today about a topic that we really haven't hit much. In fact, very little is hit in the autism community about teenagers. We first want to thank our sponsor, Sensory Learning Center, and let me introduce to you a friend, a colleague, and a wonderful person. Her name is Chantal Cecile Kira, and she is a amazing author of two phenomenal books. She also hosts a weekly radio show, The Real World of Autism, on Autism One Radio, and she speaks nationally as well as internationally as well. Uh, Chantal is the author of Adolescence on the Autism Spectrum, A Parent's Guide to the Cognitive, Social, Physical, and Transition Needs of Teenagers with Autism Spectrum Disorders, as well as her book, Autism Spectrum Disorders, The Complete Guide to Understanding Autism, Asperger's Syndrome, Pervasive Developmental Disorders, and Other ASDs. That book, by the way, won and was nominated for many awards, and I'm sure this one's on its way as well. Chantal, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Betsy. So much that I want to ask you, and selfishly so, as next month I will be celebrating my son's 13th birthday, and I'm about ready to embark onto what it is you, that you write about. But I think it definitely triggers my thought process in knowing that my son is at the older end of the spectrum right now, and the, the high schools, for example, don't, don't even have a clue as to what they're about to be hit with. High school teachers still, many of them haven't even been introduced to a lot of dealing with autism spectrum disorders. And we haven't even begun as a community to look at to at what's going to happen once these students need jobs. What do you feel about where the epidemic is traveling to? Well, actually, reports show in terms of autism, as you know, that uh, diagnosis rates are 1 in 166. But this started about 10 years ago, and so there's a huge group of kids that are now 8, 9, 10, and that is going to be sort of the biggest spot of the baby boom in terms of autism. So you're right. People like yourself who have children who are 13 or myself, my son is 17, we're at the top of the start of the epidemic. And it's really interesting because we were the ones that had to fight when our kids were little so that people now get early intervention and get ABA and get the proper education, even though it's not always happening everywhere as it should. But we're still fighting to make sure that people have information when it comes to transition. But it's not just a problem in terms of autism. It is a problem specifically about autism and how to teach uh, adolescents on the spectrum. But it's also a problem in terms of disability in general and transition. In fact, the 2002 report by the President's Commission on Excellence in Special Education showed that for the past 12 years, unemployment rate for working-age disabled adults has been at 
70%, and that's every mm. year for the past 12 years. Right. Only the past 12 years because that's all they've been taking notes on. So they found that the transition programs in schools are not really addressing the issue of getting adults to be uh, or to be adolescents to become adults that are independent and that can work. And right. this is uh, a real problem, which is why I wrote the book, because as I was doing research for Autism Spectrum Disorders, my first book, which, um, as you clearly stated, uh, won an award, actually, it was a 2005 Outstanding Literary Award from the Autism Society of America. So that, that kind of gave me my Ph.D. Right. for the book. Yeah, now we know to listen to you. Right. <laughs> and when I was researching there on the little section I did on adolescence, I found out so many things that I think parents don't realize. They don't realize that even though your child may be eligible for services once they're out of the special education or education system, they are, these services are not mandated, which means the money doesn't follow for the need, which means that you can be eligible, but you can be on a list. And okay. high school years are really the last year that we have to prepare our youth, the last year that you know that the services are there. And I realized, too, that as my son was going through middle school and high school, they, the teachers all knew and the administration all knew that he had to have an individualized transition plan. But nobody really paid much attention to it because nobody really knew what to do. They didn't have a clue. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, wow, this is really an area that I need to research personally for myself. But then I thought, gosh, I have to share this information because, uh, as you know, it's hard to get information that you need. And it's such a fight already when you have a child with autism because it's not like you get a diagnosis, and then you get an exact piece of paper that tells you exactly what to do, and then your child's going to be all fine. And, and well, and the, and the piece of that, too, is that there is so much potential for improvement that I certainly don't, I mean, as, as the intro of, of my radio show says, of a recovering child with autism, not a recovered. There's a big difference between recovered and recovering. I think as we begin to know more, um, through education, through biomedical, through diet, through so many different environmental triggers, we can always continue to recover them. So their potential for developing and getting better is certainly there. But we're not given a blueprint as to exactly how far we're going to be along. And that makes it hard to plan. And that's why I wrote my book for all levels, all functioning levels, from the, the, those who are severely impacted by their autism, such as my son, to those who are on the very able end of the spectrum who have Asperger's because mm -hmm. they all have needs, but they all can improve. To what degree they improve and to what degree people become independent is another story, but they can always improve. And, in fact, my whole philosophy behind this comes from many years ago when I worked at a state hospital before having my son. My first experience with autism was teaching at a California state hospital using discrete trial the young teens and the adults that were going to be released into the community for the first group homes that were being built following the Lanterman Act, which was a, an act here in California which uh, said that the government had to provide for people with disabilities in their community. Mm -hmm. This is why they were now opening up the institutions. Well, I taught the very developmentally disabled, and we used ABA techniques. Lovas was actually, at that time, consulting to the hospital. This was before he developed his home program. And they were able to learn, and they were able to learn to take care of themselves. Each, each person was different. So I already had this uh, idea 
in my mind and this mindset. And um, it really served me well because I had my son in France and I lived with him in three different countries. And each time, because my son is very severely impacted by autism, and every therapy has helped to a certain extent, but he's not exactly on the recovering end. <laughs> but however, he has improved and I have had to fight all the time to make people realize that he does understand what's going on around him and that he can learn. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the problems we have as our children get older, and I, we need parents to realize this too, is that people will make you think that the window of opportunity closes, but it doesn't. We can always learn. That's right. Brain our cells are continuously regenerating. It's, stroke patients recover. That's right. They learn to use their legs. They learn to use their arms or whatever they lost. Most of them can recover. Now, uh, for example, here, when my son went from elementary school to junior high, which is a different school district, administratively speaking, even though it's in the same neighborhood, all of a sudden he wasn't eligible for occupational therapy. Mm. Like, he didn't need it anymore. Oh, why doesn't he need it? Well, we don't give that at this age. As if he had been cured of all his OT needs over the summer. So again, I found myself in a legal situation of fighting for, you know, getting occupational therapy that would help my son, and it helps him immensely. Uh, People can always learn, and there's so much that can be done. So imagine you have a child who's recovering, um, who is doing, who has had the benefit, because let's face it, my son's 17. He didn't have the benefit of a lot of the therapies that are out there now. Right. So some of these uh, teenagers can do such amazing things. Most of them can. Right. Well, we're, we're going to be going to a break in a moment, uh, Chantal, but when we come back, I would like to talk of, of a few things. I want to talk about what are some of the jobs that we're, we're preparing these kids for and what we can be setting up for. Okay. Um, I also want to talk about kind of knowing the difference between what's considered regular behavior and special needs behavior. Let's face it, they're still children. They're still teenagers. Right. So if we could talk about that, I'd appreciate it. We will be back in just a moment. With Chantel, please don't go away. Bye-bye. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute. And the main issue, to sum everything up, is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies. And we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the Sensory Learning Program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. To create a kind and gentle world, 
a change in thought patterns and beliefs, individually and collectively, is needed. Join Suze Casey, developer of Belief Repattering, and her guest as they explore questions and conversations that push the boundaries and engage with you in the process of being who we really are and creating what we really want in our lives. What Do You Want Instead invites you to join the conversation every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. What Do You Want Instead supports you in honoring and accepting yourself and making the decisions that create the lifestyle you desire and deserve. Hi, this is Mark Victor Hansen. You know me for Chicken Soup for the Soul, the One Minute Millionaire, and Cracking the Millionaire Code. And what I want you to know is that if you want to have rip-roaringly good health, listen to Health Crusades by my friend John Farley. Tune in to Health Crusades with John Farley every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, only on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. Hello and welcome back. We are rejoined here with Chantal Cecile Kira, and we are speaking of her book, Adolescence on the Autism Spectrum. And we've just been touching the subject of, of adolescence so much more to, to explore here. Um, Here's the first big question. It has to do with so many parents today demanding a perfect image of what a child should be and not really accepting their individuality and and how to know when is that a special need, when is that a concern, and when is that just teenagership. Right. Well, I think there's two things going on here. There's first what I see uh, here. In America, and I speak this way because having lived in different countries, when I go back and forth to different countries to visit, I can notice things that are happening everywhere in the world and then things that are culturally happening in one spot. And I find what's really happening in America now is this whole idea of competition at an earlier age for children and the need uh, for parents or to make sure that their child are reaching certain levels or what they perceive as this need. And so, for example, I live in a very nice neighborhood, and it's sort of like Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion. <laughs> where every student is a bright student. You know, there's no student who doesn't, uh, who doesn't get an A here. And so parents are constantly uh, wanting their children to be perfect and to be the best and to get into the best schools. And uh, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's, that tends to happen now in the, out in the suburbs. Yeah. Okay, so that's one thing. So you have that standard. Then secondly, there's that whole standard of adolescence or the issues of adolescence in neurotypical individuals, adolescence is a time when people are non-compliant, when people are not wanting to listen to their parents, when they want to be themselves, they try and attach to their peers. So now you have autism where they're not necessarily trying to attach to their peers, but they're trying to be non-compliant, they're trying to have their personality come out, and they're doing things differently now. And the parents are thinking, oh my gosh, this is autism, we have to culture this behavior right away. And it's really hard to make the difference between what is autism and what is adolescence, but it's very important for parents and teachers to make that difference. And here's a very important basic safety reason why. If you have a child such as mine who spent most of his time in the early years in special education classes, they've always been taught and been rewarded for complying. Now as they get older, they're going to be out in the community more and more, and there are times when they may be at risk of being abused. Yes and made uh, abused 
sexually or physically or even just bullied, okay, uh, by peers or by uh, adults. And if they've always been told to comply, they will be complying. Mm -hmm. They need to know when it is appropriate to say no and when not to get involved in certain situations. But if you're still expecting them to comply 100% as as an adolescent, you're not going to be able to teach that. So then, of course, comes the question of how do you teach someone not to complain, or how do you know the difference between right. adolescence and autism? Uh, what I found helpful, first of all, Jeremy is my oldest, he's 17, but I have a daughter who's 14, and that has been very helpful to me. I mean, a little bit later because she's younger than him, but I see things with her and I say, wow, you know, that's typical teenage behavior, and it makes me think back to things that Jeremy does, like, for example, he stopped wanting to sit at the table with us because family dinner time is really important in my house. That's, to me, that's very yes. important. And it also comes from my French background of sharing meals together and mm-hmm. eating proper at proper times of the day and not snacking all day. And so he used to sit, you know, I taught him over the years to sit, sit, sit. <laughs> well, now he'll sit for a little while, but then he'll get up and go away and he doesn't want to eat with us. So, okay, is that autism? A little bit, but then he'll sneak back down and open the refrigerator and I'll come back down and there's food all over the kitchen because he can help himself to food, but he's not very good with uh, his motor skills, so it just gets all over. But that's typical um, adolescent behavior. What doesn't sneak down and eat stuff that they're not supposed to eat? Right, right. So you kind of have to realize, okay, where am I going to put the limits here and when is he allowed to make choices? So, for example... A lot of times we say people with autism like to have structure, and they do, but you have to give them more choices in their in their schedule now. For example, after school, my son isn't allowed to just come home and go up in his room and have private time. Well, neither is my daughter. They have to get their homework done. They have to get their chores done. But now he has more choices about when he has to do what. All, all these things have to be done by a certain time, but he has a choice in the order. He has a choice of what chores and what homework, as long as it's going to be done by whenever the date is that he needs to have it done. So that's one small way. It's giving them choices already in their schedule. Okay. Okay. Well, and that I can see as being really big for so many children just to feel that independence, that they actually have the ability to be able to make their choices and not always being told what to do. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's like sometimes I go looking for Jeremy and I can't find him and I I get a little anxious because there's safety concerns with him. Right. So he's not a runner. And the other day I went up to his room and his door was closed, so I knocked on it before opening it because I didn't know if he was in there or not. And when I opened it, he peeked out and there was Panic in the Disco, which is a band playing in the background, which obviously he can't change the CDs by himself, so someone must have helped him. But he looked at me through the door and he had a Qatar World magazine in his hand. Uh-huh. He just looked at me and he said, go away, close the door in my face. And I was so happy. Like, oh, that's like normal teenage behavior. That's right. Yeah, my son climbed a tree that was two stories tall the other day, and everyone said he's just being a boy, so I, I tried not to freak about it too much. Let's let's talk about jobs, because this is a really important issue to so many people, just to have a thought as to what ideas of jobs. And I love what you kind of talk about in your book about the kind of micro-enterprise. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. I've actually done a lot more with that in, in here in San Diego uh, I've been speaking nationally about this, but I also now do assessing and coaching and put on workshops for this whole aspect of self-employment and micro-enterprise for people on the spectrum. So I kind of divide it up into two different things. First of all, you start with figuring out 
what it is that the person likes. For example, the obsessions that we're always trying to keep them from doing. Right. And you try and see if those obsessions are things that they could earn money from or have a talent that can be transferred to a job. And I'll talk a little bit more about how to do that in a minute. But there's the other kids that are sort of like my son who uh, I'm not quite sure what he likes to do. I haven't seen any real talent, and he doesn't talk about what he would really like to do other than he likes to write now that he can spell using the rapid prompting method and tell, tell us how he feels about things. But they can still earn work because what you do with the ones who don't have a talent is you figure out, is there a need in the community, a service that's not being provided? So, for example, with my son last year on campus, because his community is his high school right now, I thought, okay, the teachers can't leave at lunchtime because uh, there's not enough time and, and all the kids are leaving with their cars at the same time. So they're stuck here to eat food. They don't like the cafeteria food. What can we do to spice up their Friday, something that Jeremy could earn money at? And Jeremy likes to move around. He likes to be in the car. He likes to give things to people. He can follow patterns and know his way around places. So we thought, okay, how about delivering sandwiches, selling sandwiches at lunchtime on Fridays? There's a health food store down the street, but again, they don't have time to get there, the teachers. So on Monday, he started putting uh, slips of paper with certain sandwiches listed on them, which previously I had gone to the health food store and asked them if they would sell the sandwiches to my son for a dollar cheaper, and they agreed. So my son is now making a dollar on each sandwich. Uh-huh. Okay. So then he takes the orders. This was, Well, this is last year, but he would take the orders. The people would send in the sheets on Wednesday with their money, and Jeremy would calculate out. You know, again, it's all functional. It's an exercise in math. Right. How much goes to the sandwich, how much goes to him. So let's say he had 18 orders. So he has $18. But out of those $18, he has to pay for paper bags and napkins. So now he has to organize that on Thursday. So Friday he can get the sandwiches, put them in the bags with napkins, and then deliver them. Now he's also learns about the cost of doing business because those $18 don't go in his pocket because he has to pay for the napkins, the paper bags and the gas. Right. Well, here's what happened. He really liked doing that job, but at the end of the year, he realized he wanted more money because he wants an assistance dog. And they're great. They have to donate a certain amount of money to these nonprofits to train dogs. So I said, Jeremy, I'm going to match that, but you, we're going to have to think about doing a little fundraising here. You're going to have to earn some money because this can get quite costly. So he decided he wasn't making enough money and he wanted a job that had more interaction with peers. So he actually gave that little business over to other kids in the class, and this year he's been buying wholesale flowers and then putting little roses together with baby's breath, selling them Friday to the peers, and he makes a $2 profit on each rose that he sells now. Wow. So... uh, and what wonderful skills you're teaching him. That's well, and now deeper. he's learning, too, about profit and loss, because here's the thing. My son is a twiddler, so he loves to twiddle with the flowers. That's why he picked flowers to begin with. Right. And then when he realized that he wasn't losing the 80 cents that the actual rose cost, but he was losing the $3 from selling the rose with the baby's breast and everything, right. he stopped twiddling with the flowers, because he wanted that money for the dog. It's much more concrete. And then sometimes he's totally overwhelmed and he can't sell at lunchtime because sometimes there's a mad rush and it's too much noise. Mm-hmm. So he says he doesn't want to sell. He prepares everything he doesn't want to sell. So then he has to pay a classmate to go sell. 
So you see he has to make decisions not based just on how he feels, but also, okay, is it worth it for me to have to pay someone $8 to go and sell for me, or can I handle, you know, that aggravation? Right. <laughs> Half an hour. I mean, that's a great lesson for anyone. Exactly. I mean, I think of my own, my, my daughters who are typical, could, could would benefit tremendously from this type of, um, you know, micro-enterprising, and, and there's so many different avenues that you can get into this. Right. Because, because as people are becoming, my guess is, as people are becoming busier and busier in their schedules, they need more runners in this right. world. Exactly. And here's another example of someone who has a talent. Uh, I'm working with a young um, gentleman, he's 21, who has Asperger's Syndrome. He graduated from high school, he's really smart, but again, he didn't benefit from any of the strategies that are available now. And he is bagging groceries at Vons. So he is one of those who does have a job. Mm-hmm. He's going to go crazy. He's already starting to get depressed. He doesn't leave his apartment. All right. he does is Vons and then his computer. Right. Actually, his father passed away, so there's even more ma- added um, stress here because there's no one really to care for him. Right. Um, I mean, he's basically independent, but he has no contact. So uh, after meeting him a few times and figuring out things with him, we decided that a good thing he decided what he really wanted to do is start selling on eBay because he likes collections of things. Oh, perfect. Loves computers. Perfect. He likes numbers, and he likes history, so he can look things up if he has things that have a little bit of historical value to them. So now he's taking an eBay class, and he is going to start selling on eBay, which is also good because he may have to move due to his father passing away. Right. And so there's something up in the neighborhood that he would be torn away from. And the eBay thing allows him to build up his self-esteem. Even if he doesn't earn money right away, he only earns a little bit, he still has his other job. On eBay, he's building up his self-esteem, and he's realizing, wow, I can do other things. That's excellent. Maybe he will go back to school to take web classes because he really wanted to be a vet, but he's not good in math. Right. He can design websites for people who uh, need it, you know, vets or animal products. Perfect. Um, great ideas. When we come back with Chantal, I want to talk a little bit about um, other um, schools, uh, what, how teachers are dealing with some of these children, how bullying is happening. I want to talk about hygiene, and I really want to make sure we talk about sexuality before the day's up. We'll be right back with Chantal. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute. And the main issue, to sum everything up, is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies. And we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the Sensory Learning Program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. 
The pressures to be thin or ideal go beyond the Hollywood headlines. In fact, those suffering from eating disorders in the U.S. number in the millions, and eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating are more common than Alzheimer's disease. Eating disorders affect men, women, adolescents, as well as young children. On Understanding Eating Disorders, Dr. Tom Scales, an internist and psychiatrist, uncovers the causes and characteristics of various eating disorders and shares his expertise on current treatment approaches. Expert guests and personal stories from some who have recovered reveal the depth of emotional conflicts of these dangerously obsessive conditions and the resolutions that work. Tune in to Understanding Eating Disorders with Dr. Tom Scales every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Understanding Eating Disorders, the cycle of eating disorders, can be broken. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Betsy. Hello and welcome back. We are here with Chantal Cecile Kira and we are having a Good discussion here about adolescence and autism. Um, so much more I want to ask you, and our time is limited, so I'm going to just jump right into it. And I need to talk about bullying because I feel this is a huge problem, and I don't know how to best handle it with the schools. If, if this is something that some states or cities are handling better, better than others, I keep hearing this no bullying tolerance yet I see no action, and maybe it's just my own community, but what needs to happen with this, and, and how how can we help these poor children who are getting teed, teased consistently? Right. Well, there's two uh, things that have to happen. Is First of all, for bullying to be stopped effectively, it really has to be a systems change. It has to come from the principal who's going to really have to make it clear there will be no tolerance and start handing out consequences for the bullying. Right. Besides educating in a positive manner about why there should not be bullying and why, you know, that all people are different from one another. Okay, so that's one thing. It has to be systematic because if you're fighting it just on your own, they're continually, you're continually going to come across this issue. However, personally, if you can't change the system or there's nothing in place or while you're even doing that, you can also work with your child. Most of the ones who most of the teens who have issues with bullying are the ones who are included or who uh, do not have a one-on-one shadow all the time. And you need to teach the teenager about things like um, appropriate behavior in public, about personal space, like not getting too close to other people. Mm-hmm. Social skills is a big thing. But also they need to learn the hidden curriculum, and that's where the biggest problem is. The hidden curriculum is of things that teenagers or all of us actually pick up on without being told, and our uh, teenagers do not. So, for example, it can be the different meanings of words. Like when people say, oh, that's so bad. Bad does not really mean bad. It means cool. Right. They need to learn about all these things. They need to learn body language. Right, body language. They need to understand when they're totally boring somebody and when... uh, what it means when people are slouching, like, you know, they just don't care. They have to understand all these kinds of... Like personal space. I mean, I know personal space is a big one, too. 
knowing not to get into somebody's space and not to stand too close and those things as well. Is that frequently a problem? Yes, it is frequently a problem. And also the conversation about the same topic. Oh, right, right. And one way around that, because people don't want to talk to people constantly talking about the same thing. Right. And I see it as an autism mom myself, you know. <laughs> you know, when your life is consumed with autism and then you're also a writer and speaker on autism, it seems like that's all you know. I have to remember when I'm with people that have nothing to do with autism that I must use to talk about other topics. Well, you have to do with the teens who are obsessed with a certain uh, subject right. and like to talk about it, the ones who are very verbal, is make sure they know that they can talk about it for half an hour when they get home or they have certain limits or they can – you have to teach them eventually to talk about something for a certain amount of minutes or right. not bring it up in a conversation. That's, that's a very important I'm piece. doing that. And I recently just heard about a class and what they were doing, and these were um, people on the high-functioning end of the spectrum, is that they would have the children, the teens go home, and actually they scripted phone conversations and they would call each other and practice speaking, and they weren't allowed to talk about the subjects they were obsessed with. Right. They had to practice asking questions and showing interest in what the other person was talking about. And so then they, that helps with phone calls, but it also helps with the actual conversations. And what, okay. Then what's your feeling towards a lot of these chat lines on the Internet as well? Is that Do you feel that that really helps with their conversation, or is that sheltering them? I mean, is that kind of putting them behind a curtain more. I think that it can be useful as, as long as it doesn't become an obsession. Right. I think it's nice that they have someone that they can talk to about what it is they're obsessed about, but it should be understood that it's only for a certain amount of time. Do you understand what I, I do? I know what you, I know what you mean because I, I deal with this with my, my daughter all the time um, who used to be on the spectrum and, and has lost her diagnosis but still has a hard time leaving that safe world of what she knows. Right. And uh, I think we're, we're all in, in that boat, you know, guilty of that piece. But sometimes with the Internet, now, I think that's an important piece that the parents need to be somewhat kind of involved, I guess, with knowing at least what line they're chatting on. Is this a safe one? What's right. happening? Um, it could be that way with the neurotypical uh as well. In fact, my daughter, because I know how it is, for example, if I get online and I see all my emails and I think, okay, I'm going to work on the next chapter of my book, but I open my email and I start answering my emails, all of a sudden I look up and I lost an hour. Right. And my daughter does the same thing, checking her AIM or answering her instant messages. So now I started with a timer. I mean, she's neurotypical, but I started with a timer so she could see how much time we actually lose because you look up and you realize you don't right. notice. But when she saw that I had the problem, too, and it wasn't, I was just trying to say we need to learn how to curb this for both of us, she started doing it herself. And now she, now she doesn't need the timer anymore, and I don't either, but we That's great. behaviorally managed ourselves. So with the teens on the spectrum, I mean, it's much harder, but it's the same kind of thing of realization of time that passes and adding other things, not just doing that one obsessional thing. Like, for example, the gentleman on the spectrum that I'm helping with the, with the eBay He's obsessed with the computer, so I don't want him just to do that, but I realized, okay, he likes animals, and he's getting a little chubby from just being at Bonds and on his computer. So now I'm, I want to get him to start doing some dog walking in the neighborhood. This will give him relationships with people, the dog owners, and he will be out walking. Yeah. So it's all about uh, adding things to giving them choices so that they're not just doing one thing or talking about one subject or one right. 
That's that's so important. Okay, now let's talk about schools. Going back to schools, and we, we touched a little bit about the bullying that you need to see what your school's policy, and definitely work with the principal. But schools in general, do you feel are losing their enthusiasm with older students? They're losing their enthusiasm, and there's a couple things that happen with the uh, teens that are on the academic track. Right. It's so hard to keep them organized and learning and get them what they need so that they still have their diploma, that sometimes we forget that once they get their diploma, hello, they're out there, and they yeah. have been really ready for, real, for the real world. Then there's the ones in special ed where we coddle them too much, and they're not really learning anything. We're just babysitting them a lot of times. I mean, right. others in between, but those are the two fears. What needs to happen, I think three things that are really important, is we need to be working on self-regulation for all of them, self-esteem, which should be started much earlier, and then executive functions, which is sort of like organizing, organizing papers, organizing time. Mm -hmm. And all these are life skills that are necessary in school, but also will carry through and help them in adulthood, but should be started early. That's interesting you say self-esteem. You're so tremendously right, and I never really thought that I should expect my school to carry that. I, I work on that so strongly with my kids at home, but really that is a big piece of the schools need to have, be involved with that. Well, it needs to be both because the school, right. how many hours does, do our children spend in school? Right. Hours. And I will, I will not tell you how many times my son, because he is nonverbal, even though He's been proven to have understanding of high school English now through the rapid prompting method in assessment school. How many times people in front of him will talk about him as if he is not there, and they're all negative things. You don't do that. And the other thing is, this is concerns me about people that are looking for the cure or recovering their child, and I'm really happy that they're doing that. Mm -hmm. But please, I hope that in front of their child, they're not talking about recovering them or making them, curing them. I mean, it's one thing saying we're going to help you. Uh, right get better or learn new skills. Because imagine if they never get cured or recovered and that's the goal for that child, they right. would think they are a failure. Right. And it really upsets me when I go to these conferences because I wonder if the parents realize their language in front of their child, no matter how young and no matter how disabled the person may appear, if they can't communicate, you do not know what they are understanding. Accepting our children for who they are and not expecting anything but, I mean, I, part of me just wants to say, I just want these kids to be happy. We certainly want them to be able to make a living, but this quote-unquote normalcy that people are striving off after and not feeling that they're going to be happy and satisfied until they've achieved that, what is normal? Well, I'll tell you what, with 1 in 166 children um, with autism and even more on the spectrum, 1 in 6 on the spectrum, normal is going to become more of the spectrum <laughs> after a while. It's, it's, it's changing. Um, there's the whole thing of normalcy, but there's also the self-esteem of what is it that the child is hearing from you. Yes. And even with our neurotypical children, if we're constantly on them every time they do something bad, which we do. I mean, we're parents, right? Right. You know, pick up your clothes, or why did you leave this on the table, or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Sit up straight, okay. eat well, yeah. And I really try every day to remember to say things nice to my daughter about what she did remember to do and what she did that, that was well. And I try in front of my son, I mean, he has autism. Okay, he has autism, and it sucks for a lot of reasons. I mean, toileting. Who thought I'd be still dealing with toileting when he's 17, even though I started with ABA when he was very little? I mean, right. there's some things, each child has something. Right, <laughs> and, sure. uh, But 
the thing is, is he's not a failure because of that, and I don't want him to have rotten self-esteem. He feels good about himself, even though he has things about him that he would like to change, and it's terrible that he needs so much help, and we'll never stop making him as independent as possible, but he still feels good about himself. He doesn't hear that these are negative things about him. That is a very important message. Um, if anything, I want people to take home, it's, it's that. Because it, with a child with strong self-esteem that feels good about themselves, um, they, they've got one up on just about any person, even those straight-A students. Because there's plenty of straight-A students who think absolutely horrible of themselves. And that's the source of so much of the bullying that's out there to begin with. Chantal, we've got to take a break now. And... Uh, I want to make sure we're going to hit the two um, important subjects. One is um, hygiene and the puberty and the whole sexuality. So when we get back, let's talk a little bit about that and any other experiences you'd like to add on. We'll be right back after this short break from Sensory Learning Center with Chantel Cecile Kara. Thank you. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the Sensory Learning Program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. The Men's Health and Lifestyle Show with Dr. Philip Worthman explores in-depth topics of concern to men of all ages regarding their health and lifestyle in an informative and provocative way. This show is the user's manual for men, a detailed and unedited guide to male physiology. Dr. Worthman, a recognized authority in men's health and male fertility, and his expert guests stimulate informative discussions and debates in a serious yet entertaining way, from explaining how or why the male body works as it does, to dispelling myths and misconceptions about men's health and sexuality. Dr. Worthman covers and uncovers it all. The Men's Health and Lifestyle Show broadcasts each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Men's Health and Lifestyle Show, teaching men what they need to know to live healthy, happy, and productive lives. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. Hello and welcome back. We are here with Chantal Kara, excuse me, Chantal Cecile Kara, and um, we are talking about adolescence and autism. 
And a very important topic that we still need to talk about is puberty, hygiene, and sexuality. Let's start with the puberty piece. What do you notice when, or what have you experienced, Chantal, with these children? Do things get clearer, fuzzier, harder, easier for a child after puberty that's, the, that's on the spectrum? Okay. Well, in my book, Adolescence on the Autism Spectrum, I do discuss a lot about puberty and hygiene. And the thing is, imagine if you're somebody who likes schedules, who doesn't like things to change, because many of our guys on the spectrum are like this. Right. All of a sudden, your body has all these things happening to it that nobody's explained to you and you have no control over. That is very scary, which is why it's so important when... Uh, your children are still preteens, that you start talking about body changes and make sure that they understand. You can use pictures, you can use words, you can use lists. There are different ways of doing it because they need to understand the changes that are happening, that it's normal, especially uh, before um, they start losing any body fluids, girls or boys, because that's a very strange thing, too, that if they don't understand what's happening, they, uh, they will really start not liking their bodies. The menstrual cycle for the girls who don't understand it has got to be brutal for some of these parents that are dealing with that. Also, wet dreams for boys. They don't quite understand why that happens. Right. Uh, Also, there's hormones that come into play. And another thing parents need to be aware of is that one in four will develop seizure activity during puberty. And we don't know if it's hormones or not, but you need to pay attention. Sometimes they can be subclinical seizures. So if your child starts really having very bad behaviors or starts uh, doing terribly at school when they used to be excellent students. I mean, you have to check all these out, make sure it's not depression, but you need to also have a neurologist look at them and make sure they're not having seizures because that is a big thing with autism that many doctors don't really know about. Um, So that's one concern with puberty and hygiene. You want to teach self-care as much as possible. And I know with my son, with his motor difficulties, That is a big problem because I have to motor him through everything. Mm -hmm. But self-care is a big issue for privacy reasons and also for abuse reasons. I mean, uh, research has shown that the people who are most abused are people who are cared for by another person, you know, physically speaking, in terms of their self-care. Another big topic that we need to talk about is masturbation. Please, yes. Okay, now, we were talking earlier about what's autism and what's adolescence. Parents, get a grip of yourselves that masturbation is a normal adolescent activity. And the only reason why you never noticed it before is because your neurotypical children, if you have any other teens, have been doing it where they should be, privately. Right. Uh, And no matter what your feelings are religiously, there's no way you're going to get rid of masturbation because this is a population that, first of all, has obsessive-compulsive behaviors as well as self-stimulatory behaviors. Right. There's nothing you can do to take away masturbation once they've discovered it. The thing that you can do is to make sure that they um, practice that in privacy in an appropriate place. All you can do, that's all you can do. And it's better that you let it happen anyway because it's also been shown that um, some of these teenagers can be very frustrated if they don't uh, reach the point of um, ejaculation, at least in males. So it's something parents need to be aware of. It can you t- never I mean, be allowed to happen in school. It should not be allowed to happen, you know, right. anywhere in the house. It should be taught to occur in the bathroom. I mean, in their bedroom, not their bathroom, but their bedroom. Right. Um, 
providing a towel. I mean, because you certainly would want to teach them self-care with that as well, too. Right. So that they would clean up if there's anything that needs right. to be cleaned after. And, and I often get asked by schools, what do we do when it's happening here at school? And I say, well, first of all, you have to have communication with the parents and uh, establish that they are allowing the person to have private time. And then you have to have communication so that if someone is masturbating at school and they say, no, you can have private time when you get home, that there's a way of communicating that to the parent so the parent knows that Johnny needs to go up to his bedroom for a while or he's going to be requesting that he doesn't get punished for doing so. Right. So there needs to be some communication like that. That's um, good. That's, that's great. That's important. Are, are schools understanding of that for the most part? Are they getting good training at knowing that that is typical behavior and... Well, I think that they realize it's typical behavior because they see it happening all the time, at least in the special education classes. I mean, they notice that these things come up. I find the teachers tell me the problem they have is communicating with the parents because a lot of times parents don't want to know. Right. That's, that's why I'm yeah. saying parents, you have to wake up and smell the roses. Right. And, and the other point of this, because it's a topic that's not exactly connected but it is related, is sexuality. Right. Okay, remember when you thought about your parents having sex and you thought that was gross? Right. Well, now you have to think about your kids having sex and that's even gross. <laughs> <laughs> the other the thing you have to think about, okay, I'm not saying masturbation is, you know, <laughs> having sex with somebody, but that's, you know, you're going down towards that path. Masturbation is one thing. Right. But it leads to that whole idea of sexuality. Well, guess what? When your child is an adult, he will have the right to choose yes or no whether to have sex. And you want him to be able to make that choice, not have it pushed on him. But you don't want to totally repress him either, because if you do, then he will get in abusive situations. So that's a whole other aspect. You have to go over sexual activity and relationships. I'm not saying go out there and explain to them all this stuff, but don't give them any uh, structures. Just the same as with my daughter, when we talked about the birds and the bees and so forth, you know, I'm not telling her it's okay to go and have sex with everyone. Of course, right. I she wouldn't have sex for a very long time now. She's 14. <laughs> but, right. uh, you know, eventually at the end of the day, it's going to be her choice. And as she gets older, I want her to be able to make the correct choices. What the people on the spectrum need to learn when they're teens, if they haven't already started learning this earlier, is about relationships. So it starts when they're little with, um, there's a great program out there, The Circle, so you have the inner circle, which is hugs, close hugs. That's your parents and your sisters and brothers. Then there's the hugs, but not quite as close. That's your uncles and aunts. Then there's the handshake. That's people that you know that you see every day. Like they shouldn't be hugging the teacher at school anymore at this point. Then there's the person that you wave to that you see every day, like the mailman going by. And then there's people that you don't even wave to, which is a stranger in the street. This seems very simple, and you think, well, how is that connected to sex? Well, this already makes the person think about the differences in relationships because then when they get older, you can be explaining more about relationships and they understand, okay, you know that, that very close hug, which was family members? Mm -hmm. When you become an adult, that's where sex can come in with the member of an opposite sex but it's an, or, or the same sex. I mean, I don't want to put judgments here, but <laughs> oh, I'm not telling parents what they should or shouldn't teach in terms of that, but I'm saying you have to be aware that what they learn about relationships is going to color what they figure out who they're allowed to have sex with or when. Right. And that's what we need to be teaching them, how to make choices in life. For those of you who are listening to this amazing um, woman here who is 
helped teach so many people what needs to be known about adolescents and autism. I want to remind everybody that she has a fabulous book called Adolescents on the Autism Spectrum, Parents' Guide to Cognitive, Social, Physical, and Transition Needs of Teenagers with Autism Spectrum Disorders. Um, Chantal, a few more questions, but I do want to make sure that people know how to get this wonderful book. Your website, do you want to, is that the best place? To on my to? website, you can definitely get more information about uh, my book, and also you can order it directly from there through um, links to Amazon. And my website is my name, which is www.chantalsicile-kira. You can get the book at any Barnes & Noble or Borders, any big bookstore, and also on Amazon. Great. That's wonderful. Um, let's go back because we talked a little bit about bullying and because bullying comes up because of the, the differences in our children to what may be the norm. And right. so hygiene is a big piece of this. Right. You know, the, the oily hair, the not ever combed hair, the clothes that don't match, wearing clothes out of season, all of those other pieces. Um, do you recommend laying out, teaching them to lay out their clothes the night before? Um, how often should they be showering? All of those pieces. Right. Um, well, yeah, I think that depending on where you live and um, what you think is important in terms of showering, obviously we live in California, it's hot all the time, so we probably take a lot more showers than other places where it's freezing cold and they don't get um, right. that, that sweaty. But you have, it's better to set a routine, like every day they do a certain thing. And if they're having a problem with a certain part of their self-care, you have to also look to see if there isn't a reason why. Maybe they're not washing their hair because they don't like the feel or the smell of the soap, or maybe they don't like the pressure on their skull. And you can figure out ways to desensitize them. And, and the other thing I'd like to add, being somewhat of, of a holistic practitioner, I want to add that a lot of shampoos can really sting and cause a lot of problems. Right. Make sure to stay away from pro products that have anything with petroleum. Make sure to stay away from products that are low in sodium lauryl sulfate, which is in most shampoos. If your child has a problem with a shampoo that's itchy or a shaving lotion that's it itchy, go to your local health food store and find something that does not have a lot of chemicals in it. It could make a big difference. Just because something says natural on it at your grocery store doesn't mean it's good. So... Um, sorry, I had to <laughs> inject that in there. As I see so many people suffering for, from hygiene problems. That's an important piece. The other thing is I would ask another teenager to give advice on the dressing thing because you may think you're cool as a parent, but you really need to have a routine <laughs> help with the dressing thing. And so uh, with my son, who uh, he chooses what clothes he wants to put on, but when we go shopping, he wants to look like, uh, the people who help him, his tutors, and he wants to look That's cool, good. So it's okay. Yeah. That, that, that can be very, very helpful to have. It's very important. Well, thank you. We've been here with Chantal Cecile Kira. Please visit her website um, at chantalcecile-kira.com um, or just get her over at uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Great, wonderful book called Adolescence on the Autism Spectrum. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be with you back next week. Take care. Thank you, Betsy. The Sensory Learning Center would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Betsy or get more information, visit 
autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks.